We talked about walking like Enoch. Pastor Tim shared walking like Enoch last week. I talked about worshiping like Abel. And this week we're talking about working like Nehemiah. Working like Nehemiah. How many of you are aware of who Nehemiah is? Good, good, good smattering of folks. Nehemiah is an Old Testament guy. You're going to find him in the book by the same name. Nehemiah is a returning leader. A returning leader. So think about this for a sec. Nehemiah isn't a priest. He isn't a prophet. He is a man with leadership skills, leadership abilities. So all of those of you who recognize yourselves as having leadership abilities, Nehemiah is your guy. Those of you who lead things, and all of us lead something, but some of you are leading fairly large things. Some of you are leading change, which is always hard. Some of you are leading organizations and people, which is always hard. So as you start thinking about being involved as a leader, Nehemiah is your guy. Nehemiah is, uh, is, as the story opens in the beginning of the book, he doesn't actually live in Jerusalem. He's not one of those who have returned from exile. In fact, as best we can tell, he doesn't actually return. He comes and does some work and goes back. Um, At the time when we meet Nehemiah, he works for the king, King Artaxerxes. Have you ever heard the name Artaxerxes before? Artaxerxes is a very powerful king of the Persian Empire. Um, Known throughout history, he, he had a long reign, did a lot of things, spread the Persian Empire from the coat from the edge of India, from the Indus Valley in India, all the way into the region of Greece, all the way down to Egypt, and became really the first among these major empire builders to conquer and control Egypt. So he takes over the Fertile Crescent and beyond, and he sort of sets the standard for these giant empires that will follow, that the empire will go all the way to the Indus Valley in Egypt and all the way to the Nile Delta and all the way down the Nile, all the way into the deserts beyond. And then eventually, as as those new ones, the Greeks and the Romans come online, they move into Europe and the empire is spread out to the west. Nehemiah is the cup bearer. Anybody got a cup bearer at home? Nobody. Anybody have a cupbearer at work? Nobody. Okay. A cupbearer is a unique job. This is the job of a person who is extremely trusted by the king. Before the cup is given to the king for the king to drink from, this guy handles it. This guy makes sure that nothing going into the gullet of the king will kill him. Okay? Very, very important job for a despot. A despot needs to know that he is safe in what he's eating and drinking. That This guy is in charge of that. I had something like this um, when I was uh, traveling with Maranatha. We were in this, the country of Ghana. And the country coordinator in Ghana, I told him I wanted to meet with the local pastors uh, from that region and talk and just have lunch with them and talk. And um, that was not a huge group. In the entire region, about half the size of Oregon, there were four of them. Um, and two of them were conference officials. So the four of us were supposed to meet for lunch. Well, the guy who, uh, who was there to make sure I didn't have a problem with what I ate went to the restaurant before the day before I was to come. He told them what I was going to eat and then told me later what I was going to eat. He then told them how they were going to prepare my food. 
the next morning before I came, he showed up before they started preparations for that food to oversee that the food that was going into my gullet didn't make me sick. Now, I will tell you, that is a very important role he was playing for me there in Ghana because I could have picked up some interesting things. When I got my shots to go to Ghana, they told me uh, there's a stripe across Africa where all the worst diseases in in the, the known history of mankind exist, and you're going right in the middle of that. I had 17 shots required to go to Ghana. It was fun. But I want you to understand, I really appreciated the ministry of this guy who had gone ahead and said, let me make sure that this gets done in a manner that you will be okay. Because I had a weak gullet compared to the folks who lived there. The cupbearer did that on behalf of Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah's role is very, very important. He's overseeing preparations for the king. He's making sure the king doesn't get poisoned. All right? Some of the Romans that we've read about should have had Nehemiah in their service because a lot of those guys seem to get poisoned. A lot of Roman emperors seem to get poisoned. Nehemiah has a visit from his family. Well, before I want to, sorry, before I go on, this is what I want to talk about today. Working like Nehemiah to me is working from a place of conviction. You have convictions about your work? For the benefit of others and under the blessing of God. Does that seem like a pretty high standard to try to achieve? Nehemiah lives here at the time. It looked a lot better back then. That are, those are the remains of the palace of Artaxerxes. So this is just what's left standing of the palace of Artaxerxes. This is what they think it looked like. You can see the, the people and the horse down below to give you a sense of the, the size of this thing. Okay? This is an artist's rendition, obviously. This is a further rendition when colors are added. Now, lest you think that they just come up with imaginary colors, they find colors still on some of these places, little cracks and crevices where there's still a little color, and they try to match those colors in these drawings. So this is not a far-fetched picture of what that may have looked like. This is actually a pretty good estimate of sort of the color that was on that building when you rolled up to it. So here's the building, here's the color, okay? So it would have been pretty spectacular. This is where Nehemiah hangs out. This is, this is where he lives. He lives among the, the king's closest associates. Lest you think the artist got carried away, this is the top of just one of the pillars still standing. So this, this particular bull is about 40 feet in the air. And look at how carefully it has been carved. So don't, don't think that that artist was getting carried away. This was a pretty spectacular place. Okay? So I want you to remember where he lives when he gets called to this new job. He's working for the king. He's working 
carefully for the king. In fact, we find out in the scripture, he's never shown up to work with a sour looking face. In the whole time he served the king. Stop. Where's your measure there? He never, apparently, until this story, had ever shown up looking sad before the king. Until this story. The story begins there in chapter 1. I'm going down to verse 3 to pick up the main point of where we're going. Things are not going well for those. This is a report about what's going on in Israel. Things are not going well for those who return from the province of Judah. Those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. So the people of Israel have been going back to Judah for a while, a while from Babylon and from Persian exile. They've been traveling back for a bit. 50,000 people went back at the beginning. More and more people are slowly trickling in. Groups of people are showing up on a fairly regular basis. And as they go, they're trying to reestablish life. They're building houses. They're planting farms. They're planting uh, vineyards. Everything's sort of trying to get back to normal. But when he gets his, his report about what's going on, a visitor from there comes to him and he reports, he said, things are not going all that well. And he hones in very specifically on what's wrong. He says, the people are in trouble and disgrace because Jerusalem's walls are still torn down. Now, we don't live in walled cities in the West. We haven't lived in walled cities on the, on, in the U.S. since we had fortresses and outposts ever so often around here. In the east, particularly during this time, if a city didn't have a wall, it was overrun regularly by bandits. Not only would it be overrun by bandits, there were wild animals that would go rolling through the streets of these cities. Groups of dogs, lions, other, other animals that would eat you as, as soon as look at you would come and visit these cities. And so not having a wall was a very difficult thing. And so the city of Jerusalem is not very well populated. In fact, best I can tell, there's hardly anyone living there. So when he gets the news, Jerusalem is, is, not, is not being cared for. They've moved back, but Jerusalem hasn't been rebuilt. The city walls are torn down. The place is in disgrace. So let me give you the, the picture of what the guy who lives in this magnificent palace starts to do he starts to think about what life is like for someone else. He starts to think about what life is like for those people over there. We live in a pretty nice spot in the world, right? We live on the North American continent, which if we said nothing else, is a pretty good spot to have to live. We live below the Canadian border. America's hat is cold. It's chilly up there. And so when they were drawing the borders, they said, "Uh, right about this line, it starts to get really cold, so let's go south of that. And we live north of the deserts to the south of us. And we live between two grand oceans. We live in a pretty nice spot in the world. We can thank those founding fathers for the borders that we share. 
we live in a pretty nice spot. Now, there are lots of other nice spots in the world. Travel a little bit, you'll find there's some nice places. You get to a city and you go, I can see why they built here. Because it's a nice spot. We also live on the west coast of North America. <clears throat> Have you visited some of the other states? Do you know why people crowd out here? It's a pretty nice place to live out here where we live. It's amazing to me the level of humidity in lots of the rest of this portion of the Western world and the North American continent. Have you, have you been to Missouri? Mississippi? Even, even Ohio and Michigan and New York and Pennsylvania in the summertime? I am an excellent sweater. If there is anything that I might be looking at the ranks of best in the world at, perspiring is right up there on that list. Last summer in Panama, I had it actually stated to me more than once. I think it was twice. So that's more than once. Twice as much as once. I've never seen anyone sweat like you. I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor and describe myself from now on as one of the best sweaters in the world. I don't like humidity. It's like sweating before you start sweating. You step outside in a place where it's humid and all of a sudden moisture gathers on you. Like you're some kind of a window to be fogged over. And I realized that people live in California for a reason. And it is not the government. <laughs> Trust me on that. We live in a pretty nice spot. The city that Nehemiah lives in is the best city in the world at the time. Babylon had been magnificent under Nebuchadnezzar. But the Persians wanted a different, better city. So they moved up out of that desert land where the, where the river ran through into some hills a little east of there. And as they moved up into the hills, the weather got better. And they built a city along another river, not as big as the Tigris or the Euphrates, but they didn't need a giant river running through this. They just needed enough water for people. And so they moved up along another river and they built this magnificent city in the foothills where it was a little cooler than it was down there on the plain. Nehemiah lived in a really nice spot when he got the news that started him thinking about the situation of someone else. It's a good thing to realize how blessed you are. It may be a better thing to recognize not everyone is as blessed as you are. In fact, I'm pretty certain 
it's a better thing when we recognize not everyone is as blessed as we are. It makes us more thankful. It makes us more compassionate. And once in a while, it moves us off our chair. And that's what happened to Nehemiah that day. He heard about what was going on in Judah. He heard about what was going on with the people, the, the children of God, that they were living in a city without walls and all of the implications of that. And he began to think about them. And he sat down and he wept. He says, in fact, for days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed. He's living in a really nice place. But the news about those folks at home really gripped him. And he sat down and he wept and he fasted and he prayed and he mourned. Not because his situation had changed, but because people he cared about were suffering. And then he reaches out to God and he quotes God back to God. Do you ever do this? Do you ever quote God back to God? Lord, you said right here in the text. I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a statement of your faith to quote God back to God. I believe you and I still believe you when you said this. We're saying the truth. And so he says, God... Remember that you told your servant Moses, if, if you, if you are faithful to me, I will, if, if you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. And God, I understand. I am looking at the reason that we were scattered. We, we've done all the things that we were, we were descriptive of our unfaithfulness. We've, we've, we were horrible. We worshiped idols. We were mean to each other to the point where we were killing each other. We were stealing from each other. We were lying to each other. We were doing all sorts of horrible things. We deserved everything we got. We were scattered among the nations. You said it would happen and it happened. I know. But you said, but you also said, if you return to me and obey my commands and live by then, them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth. Now think about the Persian Empire. As far as they knew, there wasn't much beyond the Indus Valley in Egypt or in India. There wasn't much beyond the Nile in Egypt. There was just desert out there and nobody really wanted to go beyond that desert. Nobody wanted to go out and find out what was beyond the valley, the Indus Valley. Nobody really wanted to go off into Africa and find out what was down in Africa. They, they came to the edges of civilization and they said, these are the edges of the world. Nobody would possibly want to go any further. This is far enough. This is fine. And he says, even if we were exiled to the ends of the earth, you said, even if we were exiled out to the ends of the earth. You said you would bring us back. I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Now, you've prayed these prayers, right? You know you kind of continue on in these prayers, at least in your brain. And look, God, it's, it's torn down. The gates are burned. The walls are a mess. Nobody even lives in Jerusalem. Here's this city that's supposed to be the place where you are honored and... Oh, it's a mess. It's breaking my heart. 
You promised, God, you promised that if we returned to you, you would return us from exile to the place where you would once again be honored. And so this is our guy, sitting in the lap of luxury, crying for people he doesn't even know, for relatives he doesn't even know. The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. So those people over there, God, you've been working for hundreds of years. You spoke to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. You spoke to Cyrus. And now Artaxerxes, you've been speaking to kings to get these people sent home. It was miraculous that you got them sent home in the first place. It's amazing that the exiles from Israel got to go back home. These people you rescued with amazing power, they're your servants. And oh, by the way, remember, the city of Jerusalem is a mess. The walls are torn down. The gates are burned. God, remember, these are your servants. These are your people. Can you get his argument? Have you ever made the argument? I love the faith that it takes to make this argument. I love the faith that it takes to stand up, look at the heavens, and say, God, you promised. I don't know if it's as common as I might hope. I think we're a little afraid of God. I think in that fear we we seldom have this kind of faith because this fine kind of faith says not just something about us it says something about God this man is pretty certain that God is not going to strike him dead for wagging his finger at heaven and then he says oh Lord please hear my prayer Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Now get the picture together. You're going to send them all back to a place you're going to honor. Answer the prayer of those of us who delight in seeing you honored. Please answer my prayer. Please grant me success today by making the king, Artaxerxes, favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. All he wants from God at this point is an opportunity to talk to the king. So now again, remember, remember this is a Persian despot. Remember this is a guy who shakes his head in the wrong direction and you die. This is a guy who can change the destiny of your life with just a snap of his fingers. At any moment, the king can just say, hey, I'm tired of this guy. Out. Done. No mas. And he's, his life is over. And so instead, he's not really worried about Israel right now. He says, I've got a really important meeting with the king. I've got a really significant thing I have to do before any work can be done. And I need you to straighten that out. God, I need to go talk to my boss today. And I need my boss 
to be favorable to my conversation with him. When I walk into the king's presence, now, if you follow the Bible, if you're a reader of the Bible and you, you follow these stories before, you know this happened before. Esther, who was going in to see a similar king, going in to see Artaxerxes, she goes in, as she, as she goes in, she wants all of Israel to pray for her that he will hold out his scepter to her. And she's the stinking queen. This guy's just a cupbearer. Big job, but nowhere as cool as being queen. He says, please make the king be okay when I come in. Please let him be nice to me. Turn his heart toward me. You did it to Nebuchadnezzar. You did it with Darius. You did it with Cyrus. I need you to do it now again. Would you step in for me on my behalf? And so I, I have this picture of him. Gets his best clothes on. Cleans up, shaves, makes sure he's got good deodorant on. Makes sure that as he goes in, he's not going to be offensive by his mere presence. And he comes sort of timidly into the chambers of the king. Now the cupbearer should only be coming to the king when there's a meal and he's being called upon. Comes before the king and he can't hide his face. Guy's a terrible poker player. He can't hide the sadness and the brokenness that he feels. Anybody, anybody just can't keep their, their, their emotions off their face? You just don't have that stone face? You just don't, you, you can't put the fake smile on because it looks really fake when you put it on? You, you, we show up and people go, what's wrong with you? And you go, nothing's wrong with me. Or you're happy about something. Well, well, how do you know that? Because it's all over your face. They tell you that. People say, it's, it's written all over your face. That's this guy. Nehemiah apparently does not play poker well. Nehemiah does not have a, a, the ability to, to hide his emotions. He walks in before the king. And as he walks in in front of the king, the king says, what's wrong with you? Um, look, I have never seen you before in my presence looking sad. And you control the cup that keeps me alive. What is wrong with you? Wouldn't you want to know? If the guy who holds the cup that keeps you alive is looking glum today, wouldn't you not drink the cup before you found out why he was feeling glum? That's the situation. He walks in before Artaxerxes. He's feeling kind of bummed. And he, the king says, wait just a second. You, you drink the cup. You taste it. You make sure I'm not going to die. Somebody make him drink that. Why are you looking sad today? You've never been sad in my presence before. What's up with today? And he begins to spill his heart. He says, my people, the place where my family is buried is in ruins. The the walls are torn down. You know what that means. People come and go as they please. Animals roam the streets. There's no protection. There's no security. There's no safety. There's no way for farmers to go when when bands of raiders come. There's no way for people to get away from, from wild dogs that charge through the community. There's no safety for them. It's in ruins. Can you help? And God has already preceded him. The Bible actually starts out this chapter by saying, and God turned the heart of Artaxerxes toward the people. So far, I've just kind of been telling you a story. But so much of the story 
lives in the 21st century. So much of the story is our own. Most all of us have had to have a meeting with somebody we didn't want to go into. Now, you, for you, it might have been a long time ago. You know, it might have been the principal's office. You know, you were in seventh grade and something happened and they called you to the principal's office and you were praying the whole way, God, please turn the heart of the principal unto me. Maybe it's as recently as last week and you had to go into to your boss's office. Maybe you've had to go and talk to someone who was an authority over you or an authority over something you wanted to see done. And you rehearsed those words. And you rehearsed those words. And you rehearsed those words. And you tried to memorize what you were going to say. And you just felt so small and so in need. And yet your cause was big enough and important enough that you went anyway. So what does this have to do with working like Nehemiah? Before this man goes off to do anything, the whole project has been bathed in prayer. Before he starts anything, the whole thing has been prayed for. For quite some time, he's been in prayer and mourning and fasting about this project. We know when he finally arrives, he still keeps the project under his hat and he surveys the situation before he starts. We know that when he goes to the people, when he finally arrives there and says, hey, the city's in ruins, let's rebuild the city. God has gone before him. He tells them about the story of what happened when he walked in in front of the king and how when he came to the king, the king's heart was already turned toward him. And the king said, yes, sure, go back, rebuild the walls. I'll send some people along with you to protect you. I'll give you money. You can use my forests. You can you can do all the things. Go ahead, fix it. And he turns to the people and he said, God has decided this is the time for us to rebuild the walls. Let's rebuild the walls. God has prepared the way by turning Artaxerxes' heart, the most powerful person in the world. And he said, we're going to go back and make Jerusalem great again. And we all wore red hats. And they started working on the wall. I was wondering if you guys were going to get that. And they start working on the wall. And they start working on the wall. And people from outside start sending messages about him. The first thing they do is try to humiliate him. They start talking about their wall. They start building the wall. They get the wall about halfway built up. And the people around are looking at the wall saying, what a goofy project. You guys are a bunch of idiots. If a fox walked on that wall, it would collapse. And they try first to humiliate them, make fun of them. And they, they just put their head down. And they keep going. And they keep working on the wall. They get to the gates. They start putting the frames of the gates back in place. And they get the gates built and reestablished. And they're almost ready to hang doors. And people outside are starting to get nervous. And the walls are getting taller. And the momentum is growing. They say, we're going to attack you. We are going to come and attack you if you keep building this wall. And they start laying battle plans. And they start secreting messages away saying, beware, be aware, be aware. We're going to come and attack you. And in the midst of building this wall, they have to call a stop to the work. And they say, okay, everybody, go home, get your sword. 
Get some, get, get ready, bring your chain mail. He actually talks about them wearing chain mail while they work. Now imagine working and moving big blocks of stone, wearing chain mail and carrying a sword. May work a lot harder. But he said, we can make provision against the attack of someone else. Attacks will come. We can make provision against those attacks that will come. And so they simply make provision. They simply make a different track. They change the way the work will go, but they don't stop working. They keep on working on the wall. The wall continues to grow. And they start saying, hey, uh, we're going to send word to the king that you're going to rebel against the king unless you come and meet with us. Listen, Nehemiah, we're, we're going to tell the teacher on you. And if you don't get over here and meet with us, we're going to, we're going to tell on you. You guys are going to rebel. It's been told to me by so-and-so. I have it on good authority that you're up to no good. Man, does this not sound like the present? Nehemiah says, I can't come meet with you. I have something more important to do. You have to come. Not coming. So they take the final move. The final move is one of those real sneaky backdoor moves. They go and they bribe a woman who's a prophet. And they say, You tell Nehemiah that God wants him to go into the temple and hide because he's going to get killed. Think about how disheartening that would have been for the guy carrying a sword and a boulder if Nehemiah goes and hides from danger. And so it is that Nehemiah says, Nope, you're a liar. I'm about too important of a job to quit now. And they hang the gates. And they get choirs up on top of the wall. And they march the length of the wall in two different groups. Choirs singing all the way around from gate to gate until they arrive at the temple. And they bring the choirs and the entire congregation down off the wall and into the temple for a Beautiful celebration. And here's this guy. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest, a Levite. He's just a guy. A guy with gifts. A guy with the ability to lead other people. And God calls him. Calls him to a really significant work. Calls him while he's living in a palace to come and tote rocks around and rebuild the wall. It takes 52 days to build the wall. Stop and consider how hard they worked to get this done in less than two months. 52 Days. They clear the rubble. They build the wall basically with the rubble to reestablish the wall around the Jerusalem to get gates built, to get the, the, all the, the, the gates re, uh, fixed so that they could even hang the gates. 
They get everything done. It takes 52 days. And, and, and great leadership principle, by the way, you got to recast the vision about every 26 days because right in the middle of this is when they're just about to quit because they're being attacked from outside. And they're like, we can't do this. We're being attacked. And he says, no, no, no. Here's the vision. What we're doing is too important to stop now. They're just a bunch of mouths. Don't worry about them. God is on our side and they keep working. If you're leading something about once a month, you have to cast vision again. Has to be on always out in front of the people. Takes 52 days to go from a city that dogs can maraud through to a city with its walls and gates intact. To go from a city where no one lives to a city that he will later invite all the priests and Levites who used to live in Jerusalem, the families of Jerusalem, to come back, live inside, because it's safe. 52 days. Work like Nehemiah. Work from a place of conviction. Now I want to talk to those of you who are doing work that you're not loving. This conviction can come from a lot of different places. The Bible actually talks about those of us who are working in a job that we're not loving. He simply says, the Bible simply says, work as if you're working for God. If you don't, if, if what you're doing right now isn't, isn't turning on your switches, the biblical answer is simply, look, don't make this about rocks piled on top of rocks. Make this about serving God with delight. Make this about representing God well in this setting. Secondly, work for the benefit of others. Work to the benefit of others. Now, if you're the, if you're the primary breadwinner in your home, you have big motivations already. You already know you're working for the benefit of my kids, my wife, my family, or my husband, or my, my, my college kid, or my whatever. All of those things that are going on, you're already working for the benefit of those people. But, but is there a, is there a greater picture? Is there a greater good? One of the things I'm hoping that a guy pouring cement out here knows is that this is not just a building, not just a spot on the planet covered with cement. This is a church where people will find God and they're making a kingdom difference with their trowel today. Look for those elements that elevate your work. Conviction. Benefit someone else. Look for things that elevate your work beyond the simple moving of your pencil or typing on your typewriter. Beyond the simple use of your trowel. Moving that work beyond. Now, I want to talk to those of you who are retired because you think you stopped working. If you did, you're going to die soon. I hate to bring such bad news to you, but the day you stop having a purpose for your life, it kind of stops. It ends. And we, we find this to be true. Lots and lots of retired people who quit from life stop breathing. You have to continue to seek the benefit of others, to work from a place of conviction, to do things that are meaningful to you, to do things that are beneficial to others. You have to continue. Just because you're not getting a paycheck doesn't mean you're not called of God to continue to work. All the way to your last breath, there is a work to be done. A neighbor to be one, 
a prayer to be prayed, a lawn to be mowed, a person to be loved, a bandaged bandage to be wrapped. We have work to do. We will always have work to do. And last, work under the blessing of God. Be careful of the work that is outside the biblical norms. Be be careful of the work that manipulates other human beings. Be careful of the work that is benefiting you at cost to someone else. Be careful of the work that is giving you an upper hand but not giving anyone else a hand at all. If you want to work under the blessing of God, it has to be blessable work. And you have to be a blessable person. So working like Nehemiah is from a place of conviction for the benefit of others under the blessing of God. Let's pray. Lord, in a lot of ways in our culture today, work has become a dirty word. In America and in Adventism, in Christianity in general, we have tended to be upwardly mobile for generations. And we have tended to say things to our children about work that degrade the value of just doing a good job. Lord, I pray that whether we are carrying a shovel this next week writing the the words on the screen that our boss assigned us to write. Or attacking some enterprise that we hope will change the world. We pray first that you would walk us through it. We pray that you would bless us in it. Pray that there would be someone at the end of this week who is directly benefited by something our hand touched. In Jesus' name, amen.